Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Conservation groups have filed a lawsuit against the Interior Department to prevent a highway from being built through Red Cliffs National Conservation Area in southwest Utah. The groups claim that paving over the protected land would be a violation of environmental laws, which require agencies to analyze potential environmental harms before making decisions. Red Cliffs was established as a conservation area in 2009 to help recover a threatened species, the Mojave Desert Tortoise. Today we're going to talk about the lawsuit, the Mojave Desert Tortoise, and we use that as a jumping off point to talk about broader issues of traffic congestion, growth, livable communities, smart growth, and uh, climate action. Later in the program, we'll be talking with Susan Crook, a landscape architect who's uh, well-versed in smart growth and livable communities concepts, and Eric Kron, who is a Salt Lake City area businessman and community organizer. He, uh, co-founded Save Not Pave and Unite for uh, Cottonwood Heights. Right now we bring in Tom Butine, uh, who is president of Conserve Southwest Utah, a retired engineer and scientist and manager, avid outdoorsman and conservationist. Tom Butine, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. Good to be with you. Good to have you with us. We also welcome in Pierce Kettering, uh, who is a mountain biker, um, and I think in marketing, and uh, who initiated a petitioning to a petition rather to uh, stop the proposed uh, highway through Red Cliffs National Conservation Area, created a video which has uh, gone viral on this. Pierce Kettering, welcome to the program. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Thank you. And we welcome in this part of the program Bill Mader, uh, who is was the first director of Red Cliffs De- Desert Reserve, which was devoted to protecting uh, threatened Mojave desert tortoise. Uh, former uh, executive. Uh, and a former smoke jumper as well, Bill Mater. Welcome to the program. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Appreciate everybody uh, coming on. And uh, you can join the program uh, by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. So let me tar- start with you, Tom Butine. Uh, first of all, tell us where the Red Cliffs National Conservation Area uh, is, and then tell us why Conserve Southwest Utah uh, your group is opposing this four-lane highway. Sure. Happy to give that background. The Red Cliffs National Conservation Area is about 45,000 acres. As you mentioned earlier, Tom, it was designated by Congress in 2009 as a protected area. It forms the border on the northwest side of St. George. As you would come down I-15 from Salt Lake, it's all the land, very rugged land on the right-hand side. The development of the of the metro area is right up to its border. It's very visible, very accessible because it's right by town, and it's just a fantastic site. It includes two wilderness areas, some campgrounds, the most popular Utah State Park, Snow Canyon State Park, lots of trails for hiking, biking, horseback riding, several climbing sites, ancient cultural artifacts, and more recent heritage sites. And it's all this beautiful desert landscape and red and peach and white-colored Navajo sandstone slick rock and cliffs leading all the way up to the 10,000-foot Pine Valley Mountains that are in the distance of the St. George area. It's just a fantastic site. Yeah. And uh, this is in a a fast-growing area, right? Hence the, uh, I guess, the impetus for for a highway. Uh, Traffic congestion, is is that the the reason that the folks who propose the highway want it? Yes, that is the purpose, is to relieve traffic congestion along the north side of town, traffic moving east and west along the north side of town. Hmm. Let me turn to Pierce Kettering. Um, uh, so t- tell us what your perspective of this uh, area, um, Red Cliffs National Conservation Area. What, uh, yeah. I guess, what, what's beautiful about it? What, what do you love about it? And uh, what would a four-lane highway do to this place? Well, what's beautiful about it is the uninterrupted desert landscape that the reserve is. Um, when you go up there, you have complete isolation and solace relative to the rest of the town. 
And I really value that, considering how hectic this town is with its growth. It is great to be able to go to that reserve and get away from it all and really be at the roots of what this town was prior to settlement. And what a four-lane highway would be through there would be setting a bad precedent for the future, with future development, how to handle the land that we have, and just respecting the land overall needs to be a lot more acknowledged than I believe it is. We've been talking about the uh, Mojave Desert tortoise with uh, Bill Mater, but I, w- I want to start this discussion with you, Pierce Kettering. In you, in the video that you made, uh, and I, I assume you went out to the this area to make the video. It looked like you were in a I did a open area I there. I did. Yes. I was on one of the more known trails, known as T Bone Trail. It's one of the first trails you'll get to if you're in the Red Cliffs Reserve area, and it's kind of people's first sample of what that area has to offer. The reason I chose there is because it's very close to one of the most populated areas for the Mojave Desert tortoise. So it is kind of a place that's very special to a lot of people who love those tortoises and kind of love just to perch out on a rock and sit by one in the desert alone, away from everything. Yeah. (laughs) Have you done that? Perched on a rock and uh, sat by a tortoise? You know, I do that quite a bit. Um, obviously it's not always the easiest thing to come by the tortoise, but I've been surprised by eating lunch on a rock mid-ride and seeing one walk by or seeing I'm right by one's burrow. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, so where I was going with this, uh, in your video, you, you say, you ask a question, is human convenience the only value? In other words, uh, you know, mm-hmm. the four-lane highway would promote human convenience, uh, ease traffic congestion, and you're saying just opposing that with the with the uh, you know the Mojave Desert tortoise, and you asked that question: Is yeah. human convenience the only value? Yeah. I, I'm sorry, you broke up on the last. Part oh, of that uh, question. sorry. So I just want to uh, you expand on that question. Yeah, th- this is an important question to you. Um, th- this question mm-hmm. of is human convenience the only value? Yes. Yeah. So I, I appreciate you asking that because I believe that it's not. Obviously, humans have created kind of a dystopian environment to where everything is handed to us, everything is easy. And at a certain point, I do think that's detrimental to our society and our town as a whole for a couple of reasons. One, it kind of makes us forget that we're human if everything's handed to us. And two, if we plow over everything for the sake of convenience, there won't be anything else to really visit here. Um, Our town has been known for its outdoor recreation, its epic hikes, and the desert landscape that can be therapeutic to many. And again, I do think something like a convenience-oriented road, such as the Northern Corridor, being involved or installed to our town would totally not only plow over sacred land, it would also kind of set the precedent that all we need in this town is human convenience. Mm. And I believe our town is bigger than that, and I believe lots of our locals feel the same way. It's just a matter of having the voice to really let that be known. Let me turn to Bill Mater. Um, so uh, tell me about, more about the Mojave Desert tortoise. Uh, it's a threatened species, I think. Red Cliffs National Conservation Area uh, was formed, uh, at least in part, right, to, to protect the tortoise? Yeah, here's some uh, useful background. This is a good question, Tom. In 1996, prior century, sounds like a long time ago, maybe it was, through the efforts of a team of people, the Habitat Conservation Plan was put together for Washington County. That set up the core management principles for what was later become a national conservation area. And maybe what the public uh, doesn't fully realize is that when that document was done through a multiple-year process, the Northern Corridor was analyzed, and it was specifically not allowed in the document. And uh, that's why it doesn't appear in there. It was never planned to be in there. And now we're hearing, that, you know, the proposal, a very serious proposal, put it through there. And the, the analogy I would make to that is that it will have catastrophic impacts across many different things. It's like taking... Um, an engineering chainsaw to the problem. It'd be four and a half miles long, three or 400 feet wide. Um, and when you do those kind of cuts in protected areas set aside for threat species and biodiversity, 
and people and recreation, you're removing bone tissue, you're removing organs. It, it will never be what it was. And my concern when I look at all the data, I know something about biodiversity elsewhere, it will be uh, a big contributing factor to a future collapse of the reserve that will be gone. And all those recreational values that myself and a great many other people set up will go away, and you're not going to get them back. So tell me about uh, fire in this area. I, I understand that there were four fires last summer as the, the environmental review was going on, uh, suitability of the, of the highway for the Red Cliffs Conservation Area. What impact did the fires have on tortoises? Uh, it killed tortoises. Uh, last year there were four fires. There were over 14,000 acres burned in the reserve. That's just last year in 2005. There were over 8,000 acres. And if you look back historically from the 70s, other people have done the calculations. It's probably reasonable to think that maybe a third or more of the reserve has burned. And here's what's particularly disturbing about it. It's burning because we have invasive plants there now, and they're very fire-prone communities, and they flash through, and they jump barriers, they jump roads and all these things. And last year, the four fires, there at least one, if not two, were man-caused that we know about. And so we... By putting a highway through this earth, you're kind of lighting a fuse for future fires. Uh, they're coming, and they will be devastating. And again, they don't just kill tortoises, and tortoises are significantly declining in the reserve, thanks to the transects done by UDWR. Um, but everything goes away with it. It turns into kind of a monotypic uh, landscape where the biodiversity is gone. And those are the kind of attributes that uh, attract recreational people to it, school kids, all those things. And um, when fires burn through areas, that's gone. They're not coming back the way it was. The, the desert tortoise and the landscape there did not evolve in a fire evolutionary community. So this is all new to it, and that's why it's so devastating. We turn next to Tom Butine again. Um, so we talked about traffic congestion. Uh, we know that uh, St. George area is uh, rapidly growing. Um, but, uh, and so that's the impetus for this, uh, four lane highway, uh, being proposed through this conservation area. Are there alternatives, um, highway locations or alternatives to putting a highway through the conservation area? Absolutely. There are. Pierce mentioned that human convenience shouldn't be the only reason. I think it's especially not a good reason when there are better solutions better solutions at moving traffic and solutions that don't degrade this habitat a bit. We had been proposing these solutions for quite a while, and amazingly, the environmental impact statement uh, included an analysis of two of them. And those two alternatives uh, were shown to uh, be better at, at accomplishing the purpose of the Northern Corridor than the Northern Corridor was. And they both involve basically improvements to existing highways and, and roads, better connections to I-15 uh, from the downtown area. So the environmental impact statement proved they're, they're better solutions. And why not go with a legal one rather than an illegal one, we say. Uh, do you, how hopeful are you? This is a bill was proposed by the previous administration, now a new administration, and a new Secretary of the Interior. Are, are you hopeful this is going to succeed? Well, the lawsuit sort of doesn't depend on which administration happens to be in power. It's just based on the law. And if we get a, an unbiased court, it should be obvious that these laws were were broken through the approval process of the Northern Corridor, and it should be overturned. We're pretty confident that it will be. Of course, the county is confident that they can withstand the challenges. We'll see how it works out in, in court, but we are very confident that we'll win this case. Pierce Kettering, um, you said in the video you used the phrase uh, Trojan horse. You're concerned, I think, 
that if this highway is approved, uh, that's, to use another uh, image, uh, you know, the camel's nose under the tent. In other words, further development would just follow. Yes, exactly. I think this road has been um, put in there as something that it's like, oh, this is going to be the last road we need to decongest traffic. But then before you know it, there's going to be another road that's going to stem off of that one. And before you know it, there won't be a lot of reserve land left because of all these systemic roads for human convenience. And I do feel like it's a Trojan horse for future businesses and places of work. And I think that's why some of these people have pushed it so hard is because if you build a road there, what's stopping businesses from popping up there next? And what you would see in that instance is the reserve to slowly get chipped away and become very urbanized before there's nothing left. So I do feel like it's kind of the first step in the wrong direction. Pierce Cutter, I understand you're a bicycle advocate. Uh, I'd like to get your perspective of uh, this, uh, you know, moving away from this particular uh, proposed highway and just a problem of traffic congestion and, and how we build our cities. Uh, what kind of solutions do you see from the perspective of bicycles? Oh, I see e-bikes being a very big variable for a healthy town in our future. St. George and surrounding areas have done a very good job implementing paved trails within our town. And our town has a lot of electric bikers. And ultimately, I think one way we could see this town really declog the traffic situation and improve healthy lifestyle overall is through the bike paths and electric bikes or normal acoustic bikes just getting on the bike more to get to your destination. We have over 500 miles of paved trail here. It's going to be over 800 by the time the project's done. And with that being said, if we had even one-tenth of the people driving to work commuting via electric bike or normal bike, I think we would see a lot of that traffic congestion go down. Mm. Uh, Bill Mater, I'd like to return to the subject of the uh, tortoise. So uh, how threatened is the Mojave Desert tortoise, and what are the chances of saving it? Well, you do. The LPR has demonstrated the populations are significantly declining every year, something like 3.5% per year. Um, if you look at 2015, just in the zone where the proposed highway would go, in 2015, it declined 50%. And so there's no question, if you look at the, uh, the scientific arithmetic, the Northern Corridor Highway is not defendable. Um, and I think, you know, uh, if you, if you try to look through a, a broad lens of this, and having had the opportunity to live elsewhere in the world in the Southwest, here's, what, here's one of the conclusions I've come to. Uh, one, uh, you have to listen to the science. Let the science guide your decisions and something that's important. And number two, as other people here have pointed out, there are engineering solutions. In fact, myself and other people over 15 years ago suggested a flyover of the industrial park that would tie into the southern boundary. That could have been done 15 years ago to relieve traffic, and it wasn't. So the bottom line question is, what's, what's really the catalyst behind this? And it's my view that it's not about science, because we know science isn't being followed. It's not about the best engineering concepts, because we know that's not happening. It's really about the state and county uh, having an emotional reaction that they control public lands in Utah. And it falls in the pattern that's been going on elsewhere in the state. And that's why it's such an emotional argument, because myself and other people uh, we do not accept that premise. We just have about five minutes left in this part of the program. Uh, Tom Butine, in the press release uh, announcing the uh, the lawsuit, uh, you said something quite impactful. You said, if a highway is allowed through this protected land, it means nothing can be protected. What do you mean by that? So this this land has a long history of protections and a long history of agreement in the local government to enable these protections in exchange for development elsewhere in the county. And if, if this can be overturned, we have, we have a, a threatened species that's soon to be endangered, as Bill J. 
just mentioned the declining. If a habitat that has long been protected because of a of an Endangered Species Act listed species with previous agreements in the county government with better alternatives available, better and cheaper alternatives at moving traffic while keeping the habitat in place, if that can all be overridden by a local government just requesting it and the federal government acquiescing, saying, okay, there's not a better case anywhere for protecting land. And if this protection can be overturned, any protection anywhere can be overturned. We get some final uh, thoughts here in this half of the program. Uh, first, from Pierce Kettering, what? Uh, tell me again what you see as being at stake here with this uh, decision. I see what's at stake mainly is one of the reasons people like myself choose to live here, and that is the uninterrupted desert landscape. Um, for example, one of my favorite trails in the area is called Ice House, and it comes down a giant mesa facing towards town. One of the best things about this trail is how there's miles upon miles of desert land without any human alter alterations. And if you were to put the Northern Corridor in there, what you would see as you come down that trail is a massive four-lane highway. And that would kind of defeat the purpose of being out there in the first place for me, um, just knowing that all of my area that I love to get away from town with is now becoming part of town. And Bill Mader, uh, we'll give you the last word in this segment. Uh, what uh, What's at stake? Uh, maybe your, your final words on this. I think, uh, well, thanks for letting me have the last word. <laughs> um, I think what what's at stake is not only the future of the reserve, because the future of the reserve right now through fires and disease and other things going on with tortoises and impacts to recreation, it's heading to kind of an ugly place unless it's stopped. And if we let the northern corridor highway go through, when there are better solutions, probably more cost-effective solutions, uh, you're going to see the quality of people's lives impacted, not just tortoises and person uh, biodiversity, but the quality of people's lives. And I think it's, uh, I think this is a resolvable issue if it has to be resolved in court. I think, uh, I think we will win. I hope I will be part of that. And so there are bigger things at stake here than just tortoises. It's about people, recreation, biodiversity. That's what that landscape means to us. Yes, uh, Bill Mader, uh, first director of the Red Cliffs Desert Reserve, uh, has been with us uh, this uh, half hour. Uh, Bill Mader, thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Uh, Pierce Kettering, uh, who initiated a petition to stop the proposed Northern Corridor Highway through Red Cliffs National Conservation Area, created a video promoting that petition, has been with us as well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate your time. Appreciate that. Uh, Tom Butine, who is president of Conserve Southwest Utah, will stay with us in the next half of the program. And uh, in uh, that second half, following a break, we'll welcome in uh, Susan Crook, a landscape architect, and Eric Kran, who's a Salt Lake City area businessman and a co-founder of Save Not Pave. And we'll have the second half of the program coming up uh, following this break. Support for Utah Public Radio programming and Spanish language programming is made possible by our members and the USU Office of Global Engagement, fostering diversity, inclusion, and cultural awareness by supporting international students and scholars and facilitating study abroad opportunities. Information at globalengagement.usu.edu. Hanging baskets and planters look beautiful early in the growing season and make an amazing addition to any yard or garden. However, by the time the heat arrives in late June or July, they can struggle and suffer without proper care and eventually find a new home in the compost pile. The secret recipe to keep your hanging baskets and planters looking beautiful all summer requires only a few simple steps. Fertilize, hydrate, and repeat. Use a water-soluble or liquid fertilizer every three to four days and hydrate the soil completely on a daily basis. Use a soil penetrant or hydrating agent if your baskets dry out too fast. 
Consistent watering, a regular fertilizer regimen, and your persistence can make all the difference in a gorgeous planter or an early addition to the compost heap. Support for The Garden Spot comes from Logan Extermination, serving Cache Valley for over 45 years, offering year-round pest control, lawn, tree, and shrub maintenance. Information at loganextermination.net. Make an appointment with Public Radio's favorite family doc on the next Zorba Pastor on Your Health. It'll be a jam-packed hour on healthy living, including this recipe for... Grilled peaches with barata. We always have a great time. So will you on Zorba Pastor on Your Health from PRX. Sunday afternoon at 1 here on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Conservation groups have filed a lawsuit against the Interior Department to prevent a highway from being built through Red Cliffs National Conservation Area in southwest Utah. And uh, Red Cliffs was established as a conservation area in 2009 to help recover a threatened species, the Mojave Desert Tortoise. And earlier in the program, we talked about that lawsuit about the tortoise. And uh, we're going to transition now in this half of the program using that uh, incident in that lawsuit, uh, the uh, possibility of the highway, uh, to talk about the broader issues of traffic congestion, uh, livable communities, smart growth, and uh, climate action. And uh, Tom Butine remains with us. To remind you, he's an engineer, scientist, program manager, and uh, he is uh, heading up a conserve southwest Utah. He's a retired Boeing technical fellow. Hiker, biker, and sailor, understand, Tom Butine. Well, uh, uh, thanks for staying with us. Yep, great to be back with you again, Tom. Thanks. Yes. In this part of the program, we welcome in Susan Crook, who is a, a licensed landscape architect with over 25 years of experience in government services, planner, and in private practice uh, with emphasis on sustainable uh, sites and historical uh, preservation. Susan Crook, welcome to the program. Thank you. And Eric Kron is a founding member of uh, Save Not Pave, a nonpartisan grassroots organization, principal membership within Cottonwood Heights and Sandy. It's aims to preserve the gateway to big and little Cottonwood Canyons for future generations. Uh, he's also well-versed uh, in, uh, in planning, in uh, livable communities. Um, he's also a founding member of Unite for Cotton Heights. And uh, understand, Eric Kron, you grew up in Guadalajara, Mexico, and uh, watched uh, growth deteriorate the livability of that city. Uh, that is correct, and uh, thank you very much for having us. Yes, thanks Thanks for being on with us. Um, so uh, we are going to transition now to talking about some uh, broader concepts illustrated by this proposed highway through the conservation area. Uh, Utah is one of the fastest-growing states in the nation, and uh, but, you know, some people say, is should growth be our most trusted measurement for economic success? And how is growth playing out on the ground? And uh, so we want to talk about smart growth, livable uh, communities. Uh, let me start with uh, Susan Crook. Uh, give me your definition of smart growth. Well, smart growth is uh, basically creating communities that are livable. And this is defined, I think, quite well by the American Association of Retired Persons, AARP, as well as Smart Growth America, a nonprofit that promotes smart growth and complete streets. And uh, they, they both... These, both of the organizations, uh, AARP's Livable Communities Initiative and Smart Growth America, have basically the same principles. But I like the way I like the way that um, AARP defines livable communities: affordable and accessible housing, neighborhoods that provide access to life, work, and play, safe, convenient transportation options. They um, talk about environment, clean air, water, and open space. And just as an aside, open lands are often seen as places waiting for development, which is what we see in St. George. The, another principle that AARP talks about with livable communities is um, healthy communities where prevention of disease and access and quality to health care is, is part of that. Civic and, and social involvement, which I believe is one of the keys to smart growth and livable communities, and having opportunities to get involved 
with other people and with the environment. And these are some of the, the principles, the seven principles that AARP outlines. They have a great poster in a livable community. People of all ages can go for a walk, cross the streets, ride a bike, get around without a car, live safely and comfortably, work or volunteer, enjoy public places, socialize, spend time outdoors, be entertained, go shopping, buy healthy food, find the services they need, and make their city, town, or neighborhood a lifelong home. So that those are some of the basic principles that, that I think make a livable community. Again, um, I think that uh, George Smith, Utah's first professional planner, was very smart. When he was implementing zoning in Salt Lake County, he made sure that the public was involved in that process so that there was support for doing that implementation. Let me turn to Eric Kran. Um, so the name of your organization, Save Not Pave, what does that mean? Well, it means that uh, there are solutions other than just uh, laying more pavement. And uh, it's about building community, and without unity, there is no community. Um, it's about uh, learning and teaching other people about uh, the main sources of uh, the main sources of um, you know dysfunction uh, versus the symptoms which become too apparent like you know um, freeway that's going to go across a conservation area. Mm. Eric Caron, you uh, sent some materials uh, in preparation for the program. Interesting to delve into some of the history of uh, of, of planning, you know, transportation planning, uh, a subset. Um, and uh, you pointed out that it, it used to be for, you know, centuries that the the um, the measurement was the, the human body. How far can we walk, right? And then uh, in the 20th century, it uh, became the car. So that became the, 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 uh, the shape, the what shaped uh, our suburban areas. Um, and I, uh, I was watching a video that, uh, that you sent a link to, uh, this fellow just pointing the camera out, out his window as he drive, drove through Mississauga, um, in Ontario, Canada. It's, it's a bedroom community to uh, Toronto. Um, and it looked very much like Utah, it looked very much like Salt Lake or any of the cities that we, that we, um, uh, would uh, point to. And, uh, it, becomes clear as you're watching that video that uh, that is true, that we build our cities nowadays uh, for the car. Correct. I think that uh, once we actually take a step back and uh, look at, you know, beyond what the symptoms are, um, it's, it's about the basic unit of measurement of how we decide what the built environment is going to be. And um, in the early uh, 20th century, when the car gets invented, um, architects uh, are looking at the future. They are thinking, well, we're going to build uh, cities that are modern, you know, that are going to have the convenience, um, you know, that uh, was spoken about earlier in the show, about, you know, being able to drive everywhere and do everything that way. And that becomes part of that Radburn. Uh, then after uh, Radburn is a town in New Jersey that um, was where the first community that had cul-de-sacs and, you know, what I call a dead warm uh, system of streets. Uh, Levittown in uh, Long Island, New York, is uh, the first suburb after World War II, which becomes, um, you know, basically the suburban model that we are still building today. So when I became aware of the lawsuit and I said, oh, what's happening down in St. George? I, you know, the first thing I did was Google Maps and go and take a look. And I try to see what's happening in the area where the freeway is going to go, the, you know, the starting and the ending points. And in the north, um, northeast quadrant, you can actually see all this new development that is being laid out in this car-centric Levittown Radburn, you know, non-human uh, scaled uh, type of development. And uh, I think that those are the things that are triggering the growth that most people don't want to see, um, that is detrimental and that it causes all the congestion because all these communities are not self-sufficient. So everybody has to travel through a corridor 
to get downtown to go to work or shop or go to school or library or everything else. Let me turn to Tom Butine here. Um, so you have experience with you know, transportation planning. Um, what, tell me a little bit about that experience and, and uh, as it relates to, uh, I guess, the planning, which is perhaps driving uh, the, the need, as some people say, see it, for this uh, four-lane highway through the conservation area. I've, I've backed into my experience with transportation planning. It's not a professional experience. It just comes from analyzing the issues that we have here in Washington County. Our transportation planning is, is chasing the development. We've got piecemeal approvals of neighborhoods and commercial developments, and the infrastructure, including transportation infrastructure, chases that development. We don't have and, and this is not uncommon. We have this lots of places in Utah and around the U.S. where people develop properties. They go to the city council, get approval for it, and roads and water use and power use chase that development. We don't have an integrated growth plan here. We had a concept of it developed in 2006. Our organization was a big part of that developing what was called at the time Vision Dixie, which was an envisioning activity that involved a lot of, of residents here over a long period of time. It was expensive, and it laid out a vision for how we should grow. Our cities had no mechanism and no commitment to implement that in their planning mechanisms, so it just remained a concept on the shelf. I think our local transportation planners will agree with that. So we need to get towards a more integrated planning mechanism that incorporates the smart growth policies that Vision Dixie included in its its vision 15 years ago. We just need to get back to that and implement it. Let me turn back to Susan Crook. Um, uh, so Tom Butine just talked about Vision Dixie and that, that there are at least some folks came together to, to provide a vision. You talked about, um, you know, neighborhoods coming together and, and trying to create a unified vision. Um, these things can become pretty heated and a lot of disagreement about this. Uh, how do we come to a unified vision of how the growth should go? Well, we, we actually have legislation in Utah, um, some some revisions to the general plan legislation in 2019 that mandated that cities should link transportation planning, um, affordable housing, and land use planning. Land use planning being the core of all of these. That's where it starts. You have to plan how this is where zoning got started, the idea that we wanted land uses that were not consistent with each other separated. But we've discovered that that causes a lot of the sprawl and the, the disunity. Yes, we don't want industrial sites right next to residential, but mixed-use neighborhoods are part of what makes a community successful. And being able to have that be a unified sort of planning mechanism with the residents involved and not just the political leaders and the public officials or consultants coming in to do that is what really makes things work best. The um, people who live in the community need to be part of that conversation. I'm a big advocate for that as, as a landscape architect and planner. Um, I was involved with Salt Lake County as a, the the uh, first person that was in charge of the Foothills and Canyons Overlay Zone implementation there, and um, that uh, was an interesting, an interesting experience to see what had already happened when that that ordinance was was passed. That there, the, the development had already happened, and this was sort of a catch-up thing that was that was trying to to mitigate the damage done. For example subdivisions with no secondary egress in fire-prone areas <laughs> in Immigration Canyon. So having, having those community conversations 
And I realize that our public officials, elected officials, are so overwhelmed, especially in St. George, where we have planning just continuing. Um, the, the, the growth is it's almost impossible to catch up with the planning. We're, we're continually having to update the, the general plans to try to catch up with what happened last week in the city council when they amended the zoning ordinance to change its own. I realize this is a difficult thing to do. But I think that as St. George City approaches the 100,000 mark in population and becomes a, a city of the first class in Utah, it's time to implement geographic representation with the city council and establish community councils where the neighborhoods can come together in those geographic community councils and through volunteer committees then have access to the elected officials I think we will do a much better job with planning with that kind of input. If you just joined us, you're listening to Access U Time, Tom Williams, and we're talking about uh, smart growth, uh, livable communities, uh, planning, including traffic planning, um, with Eric Kron, who is a co founder of Save Not Pave. We're talking with uh, uh, landscape engineer um, Susan uh, Crook. Uh, we're talking with the president of uh, Conserve Southwest Utah, Tom Butine. Let me turn back to um, Eric Kran and uh, narrow it in back on transportation. Um, so I was watching a video you sent, a lecture by Andres Duane. Am I pronouncing that correctly? That is correct, yes. Okay, a founder of the Congress of New Urbanism. And he said, uh, I think this would be current, he said, traffic engineers uh, are considered the solution to all of our traffic problems. And so they're be giving a, a free hand. And so if you do that, he says, uh, it's just more and more roads. And the, the pressure is faster and faster, <laughs> uh, which is not necessarily safe, right? And uh, then you contrast that with the Netherlands and Vision Zero. Could you tell me briefly about Vision Zero? Um, so Vision Zero is basically uh, implementing those metrics back to, you know, bring them back to the, you know, human condition. And um, it talks about, uh, you know, universal terms about how mobility has to, one, first be safe. Uh, and number two, it doesn't necessarily mean that by safer uh, you're limiting mobility. But you need to consider the limits of the human body. And... Uh, you know, um, we were talking uh, about a little bit about, uh, you know, m the holistic approach of land use together with uh, transportation. Um, when you have a neighborhood where uh, children are expected to be walking from one house to the other, um, it, you know, people are walking, uh, there's, there, there's, a, there's a necessity for actually reducing the speed. As uh, you go to stores and, uh, you know, roads are, you know, more heavily trafficked by cars, but there's still cross-traffic, 90-degree uh, turns or stoplights, uh, things like that. We need to maintain speeds that are safe uh, on broadside collisions, which, for example, uh, it is known by studies that at 30 miles an hour, uh, a car getting broadsided, you have a 15% chance of being seriously injured or dying. But at 40 miles an hour, the chance of dying or of serious injury goes to 85%. So, so there's a limit on the threshold of the human body to absorb those impacts of accidents that will happen. Um, so Vision Zero actually tries to restrict speed in the complex environment of a community and uh, a permit speed to happen in you know, limited access freeways where, you know, there's no cyclists, there's no pedestrians, the cross, tra you know, traffic merges instead of crosses it. Um, and that's basically the premise of uh, Vision Zero or systematic safety. Um, and I have to totally agree uh, with Ms. Cook about uh, uh, empowering citizens and officials in, in our local government institutions uh, by understanding um, why, when we start diverging from that human scale into a car-centric development. And, um, you know, it, the same video that I sent with Andres Duany that uh, talks about, you know, the termination of vistas with monuments. Uh, recently in the news, we've been hearing a lot about monuments back east uh, that are being taken down, et cetera, but at least... Those are 
monuments that are the central focal point of a community and the transportation system actually creates that type of built environment that builds that community. When we move away from that human element and we start move, making it into a car-centric, you lose those vista terminations. You create um, city streets or neighborhood streets with a 25-feet radius on the streets, which allows car traffic to go much faster than what it's safe for people to go through. And those are elements that are codified in our zoning and other municipal, county, and state ordinances that, uh, that take into account what car traffic as the main unit rather than the human element of a community. We just have about uh, three or four minutes left in the program, so I uh, want to bring this uh, now to a conclusion. Just about a minute each, uh, we'll start with um, uh, Susan Crook. What uh, what action can uh, concerned citizens take? Well, I think the, the 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 onus cannot only be on citizens, but I think we have to go to our elected officials and ask for access. That we need to be able to respond to not only respond but have have a voice up front in planning efforts. Uh, we've just been having a general plan update in St. George. And it's been it's been very difficult to find out how to participate in that mandated public involvement portion of that because the city uses Facebook to communicate. It's difficult in these days. Newspapers don't get out to everyone, but there has. It sounds like you cut out a little better. Would you still have you, Susan Crook? Yes, I'm still here. Oh, oh cut out just a little bit. So just uh, maybe restate that last sentence. There has to be a better way of reaching citizens from our, our elected officials. That there, I don't think there's a, a, a sincere effort to involve the citizens in the community with planning. Mm. Um, Tom Butine, uh, final words from you, uh, just about a minute. What would you have uh, folks do? I agree, too, with my friend Susan. Growth is the number one topic of every local political campaign in the last ooh, 10 years, or at least, maybe maybe more. Every candidate has growth management as their top political issue to address if they were to make it into office. It's just not, not followed through once candidates get elected. We need to, as Susan said, ask our elected officials to engage in the citizens. Her idea about having uh, community-based committees that have access to our elected leaders would help. Um, we just need to keep pressuring our elected officials to support smart growth policies and have them be accountable to it. Have them show with every approval of a development or of a new highway or whatever, how that fits into an integrated plan for the whole area. And if it doesn't fit in, there's questions about how and why, and those plans need to be accountable to the values that we want to implement around here, which are basically those smart growth principles. Eric Crown, just a minute left in the program. What's the one thing you would have people take away from this discussion? that we need to redefine um, community as a human value, not a car problem. Growth should be welcomed. Uh, it's a great problem to have, um, you know, better than the alternative. Yet what we are uh, facing is uh, a, pr a problem of how we measure and create the metrics. And therefore, the solutions that are proposed are missing the point, are building more freeways or, you know, say, putting more pavement, rather than re restructuring our neighborhoods into complete neighborhoods where there's work, livable spaces, um, which ancient civilizations, just like in the ruins in New Mexico, Arizona, and uh, right here in Utah, um, can show us how we used to live and be able to be prosperous in, you know, in a small locations and just build that on the suburbs rather than the suburbs. 
Very good. We uh, are at the end of our time, and uh, we appreciate very much uh, Tom Butine, president of uh, Conserve Southwest Utah. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tom. Great. Appreciate that. Uh, I'll mention that uh, Conserve Southwest Utah can be found at uh, conserveswu.org. Um, we uh, thank very much um, Susan Crook, landscape architect, uh, for joining us. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Eric Kron uh, is a co-founder of Save Not Pave and Unite for Cottonwood Heights. Uh, thanks so much. Thank you so very much. And Save Not Pave is savenotpave.org. Uh, and thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah. We'll go out as we do on Thursdays with Leo T. and Skywatcher. Skywatcher Leo T. here. Look up, look around, and get a little lost in space. Let's join the NASA space probe Juno way out in the solar system as it speeds by and has a close encounter with Jupiter's largest moon, Ganymede. Earthlings have not sent a probe since 2000 when NASA's Galileo spacecraft dropped by. And before that, 1979, when the still-going-strong twin Voyager probes took stunning photos as they swung past the strange world, which, by the way, is the largest moon in the whole solar system. On Monday, June 7th, NASA's Juno spacecraft skimmed just 645 miles above Ganymede's surface, joining that rare company, gathering observations and taking a few snapshots, showing the surface in remarkable detail, including craters, clearly distinct dark and bright terrain, and long structural features possibly linked to tectonic faults. Yeah, tectonic faults on a moon out by Jupiter. Stay tuned for more as Juno checks out Ganymede around Jupiter. Check out some snapshots from Juno and Voyager on the Skywatcher Facebook page and resources for this program. Also in the solar system, the moon casts a shadow on our planet and blocks some of the sun's light on, yes, yet another eclipse. Thursday during the annular solar eclipse, this occurs when the moon is too far away from the Earth and its elliptical orbit to completely block out the sun, but will leave an outer ring of sun exposed. This will create an eerie surrealistic aura to experience. Cue the Jefferson Airplane. If the sky is clear toward the east-northeast, look above the mountains or the Moab Rim. The rising sun will appear slightly dented, deeply crescent-shaped, or even ring-shaped. The fullest part of the eclipse will last about four minutes. Later that night or the next, if you look out of your tent or the kitchen window to the south and up a little, in the dome of the sky, you'll notice the twinkling subtle light of a small blue star twinkling with plenty of room around her. It's Spica. Soak it up for a bit. Take a breath, and look to the left or east, and you'll find the colorful Scorpius spread across the southeast sky with several sparkling gems and nebulas and orange-red big Antares. It's the heart of scorpion beating. On Skywatcher Leo T, it's one sky, many cultures. Tonight, let's travel to the Pacific Northwest Coast and the Lumi tribe. When you relish the blue star spica in the southeast, follow an arc back up to the north and you'll find even larger red giant star called Arcturus. For the Lumi and many other native cultures, coyotes played the role of a clever trickster. And in this story, the coyote, who was not short on ideas, liked to take his eyeballs out and juggle them to impress the girls. One night he was juggling them and he threw one so high that it stuck in the sky and became Arcturus. So keep juggling those eyeballs. Look up, look around, get a little bit lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T. UPR, with translator stations statewide and streaming live at upr.org. UPR is supported by our members and Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater, presenting 33 variations, discovering why Beethoven was compelled to write 33 distinct variations on a simple theme by a minor music publisher. Information at utahfestival.org. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Bernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.